Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, sitting across the podcast table in our living room in Salt Lake City, is my friend Janice Spangler. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Jana lives close by. I think I've mentioned I live near Cottonwood High School. Jana actually went to Cottonwood High School a long time ago, not too long so ago. So long ago. <laughs> and lives in the Olympus area, so she's close by. And Jana has a real expertise. She's a life coach, but she talks um, to Mormon congregations and other groups about what a faith crisis is, what a faith transition is, how if there's a marriage that both started out with the same faith in our church and one over time acquires a different faith. That's called a mixed faith marriage. And Jenna has real skill and in counseling with those couples on how to keep the marriage together, even if there's difference in faith. And I think God would want those marriages to stay together. And so Jenna just has a real expertise in this area. I've known Jenna for about three years and someone I've really liked, wanted to have on the podcast. So we finally found this time and we just pray, you know, this podcast is a podcast that's supportive of the church and also trying to talk about more complicated topics in a way that there's just more um, understanding to bring us together as fellow humans, even in our differences. Mm -hmm. And Jana has some real expertise. So we hope that those of you that are very traditional believing members at the end of all of our podcasts actually feel better about our church, but also have better tools to keep um, us together as families and as friends and as just a human family, as all of us really do want the same goals. So is that a fair introduction? That sounds great. Thank you. Talk about this fireside. You were asked to speak at a ward fireside in the Salt Lake City area mm -hmm. um, to just talk about um, the the format. Just talk about why you were invited and the content we're going to get in then and to what you shared. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, the invitation to that actually came out of a presentation that I did to North Star at their um, their retreat. Yeah, their it's, it's their annual conference. Conference. Thank you. The word was And I was there that me. day, but didn't go to your session. So okay. I was so glad to see you on the program. Yes, I've, I've done it the last two years. And so it was through um, someone coming to that. And it was one of the organizers of North Star came to that and, and um, really loved the presentation. And um, so he asked for me to come and speak to his ward about similar issues just um so it was really the framing of it was to talk about challenges to faith um how to navigate that and then for to to allow some understanding for people who have not experienced it necessarily themselves but who have been affected by it because they see other people and loved ones going through that and which can be just a really difficult thing that we don't know how to um, how to navigate. So I uh, kind of introduce what a faith crisis looks like and help give some tools to work through that and how to keep relationships strong through that and how to um, support and love one another through that difficult adjustment. That's great. And I, I was so glad to hear that you were giving this and the thought came to my mind is I hope you and others that have the same expertise are able to give this kind of a fireside across the church, because mm -hmm. I think it helps all of us come together and gives us better principles. I never, before I was called to be a YSA bishop, never really had any training on how to minister to my members that 
we're in a faith crisis or faith transition or faith journey, and maybe you can help define those terms to us. And mm -hmm. so I recognize what you're doing is very, very helpful. Yeah. So if I'm sitting in the fireside mm -hmm. and I'm, I've really never been exposed to this topic, just kind of what I, I want our listeners to pretend we're in your fireside now. Okay. <laughs> um, and just go ahead and kind of walk us through, you don't have to do the whole fireside, yeah. but teach us what you shared in the fireside. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I, I, I first just like to uh, kind of normalize that this is something that is happening to a lot of people. And um, typically the reason that someone starts to fall into questioning or doubts or, I mean, there are a lot of loaded terms we use around this, um, but typically they've experienced something in their life where their lived experience or, or their understanding of something is different from what they have understood their whole lives growing up within the faith. And it creates cognitive dissonance. That's a psychological term that just means holding two things at the same time that don't seem to fit. And it, it causes psychological distress. It, it, we don't like to be in that state. And so um, most of the time, what we try to do is resolve that either by um, just maybe saying, I don't want to deal with that thing in my life that I think is different. I'm just going to set that aside and um, just embrace what I've always thought. Um, and that has some real benefits to it. Um, or that there are also drawbacks to it. Or we start to say, you know what, I, I really can't let go of this thing. This thing is really really disturbing to me. I have real questions about this and I've really got to start questioning what I've always thought. And the, the, usually those are the only two options we look at. Um, later in the fireside, I talk about a third option Good. of um, maybe some a way to do both and rather than either or in that situation. But it's really natural. And what I see happening so often is Initially, the person who starts to have these kinds of real questions, sometimes it's around historical questions, sometimes it's around social issues, um, um, LGBTQ issues or um, women's issues, the roles, roles of women um, in the faith. And, and there, there are infinite <laughs> ways to do this. Some people just feel like it's losing its savor and um, what they're learning just doesn't hold the same feeling for them that it used to. So there, there are as many different ways to go through this, these, this kind of faith questioning as there are people, <laughs> but there are some kind of broad categories. So um, once the person starts feeling this and it, and it lands deeply enough in their heart that they can't just dismiss um, those feelings or those thoughts or those questions, they're in a, a real difficulty because it's really hard to find um, people to be able to talk to about it, to feel comfortable that you'll be received well and that you'll be understood. And um, it becomes very painful because, as you said, most leadership and most most of us don't really know how to react to that. And it and it's threatening. It's scary. It's really frightening for those of us who have not experienced that because 
we just imagine all kinds of things. What We have all kinds of misconceptions about what brought on this kind of questioning and why can't you just set that aside? Why can't you just believe, just read your scriptures more, or, you know, um, pray more. And in my experience, one of the things that, that I like to help people understand is that so many people that I see in this space are in so much pain and they are actually spending more time on their knees than most of us and really desperately pleading to have reconciliation and a way to understand their experience. And unfortunately, there are very few places that they can find that are safe to work through the problems. That's very helpful. And yeah. Cognitive dissonance is a term that was not in my vocabulary mm. until I experienced some of this myself. And a friend said, it's sort of like me speaking in front of a group of people with a 50-slide PowerPoint saying the earth is flat, sitting down and getting up with another 50-point PowerPoint saying the earth is round, <laughs> and believing both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that would be hard. <laughs> yes. And, and, it, and, and the distress that you talk about when yes. you have to hold both of those, and, and you don't want to hold both of those. And I think you're going to mm -hmm. talk about that later. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say that the, um, the psychological distress has been shown to be higher with a couple of factors. One is if you don't have a way to reconcile it easily, it's more painful. And how um, instrumental is this? How key is it to your life and your worldview? And you can see how with issues of faith, that's huge. Yeah. So, so it is really, really a painful experience. To talk about terms of faith transition, faith crisis, mm -hmm. faith journey, um, mm -hmm. are those just help us with vocabulary? Okay, yeah. So, um, a lot of people, faith crisis is a term I hear a lot, and I would say that it is something that uh, I hear early on in in the process with people who really get to this place where they're really, really questioning. And um, and one thing I should probably make a distinction. I, I've talked to a lot of people. I don't, I don't talk to many people who are faithful people who haven't had some sort of questions. Hmm. I, I mean, I think we wouldn't be human to, have, to not have some sort of questions. We have um, enough in, our, in, in the history of our gospel um, to have questions about things. So, um, but there, I, I would just like to speak to people who have managed to really remain very, very faithful, that there is a difference between saying, oh, I don't really like that issue. You know, that issue is hard for me, but I'm, you know, it's really not um, instrumental to my life. So I'm just going to set that aside. I would not call that faith crisis. I would say it gets to faith crisis when it starts to threaten your entire way of thinking about the gospel. And that's something that's really hard to get into that frame of mind unless you, unless you've been through it. Um, um, so that's remind me the question. Yeah. Oh, Just so the terms. Yeah. So I would say that faith crisis gets really used. Um, it feels very much like a crisis at the very beginning because I mean, we're, we're talking about issues of our identity, who we are, where we've come from, what right from wrong, how we live our lives, who we choose to marry, what we do. I mean, it's, it's just completely pervasive to our existence. And so when you really start questioning, um, you know, fundamentally what you've always believed, 
um, it really feels like a crisis. So I think when you're in that spot, it's a, a pretty appropriate term. Um, what I've observed is that over time, people become less um, comfortable with that term. Um, people who have gone through this don't really want to feel like everyone is seeing them like they're a problem or a crisis or, you know, in those terms, it starts to feel like it's a bit much. And so then I start hearing people move to more language of faith transition or faith shift. And part of that comes out of an understanding of faith development. And this is something that more and more people are starting to, um, to study and understand is that uh, there's kind of a continuum of faith development. And so what feels like a crisis, like my only choice here is to either have faith or not have faith, they realize that there are actually more possibilities, that there are possibilities of developing into maybe a different kind of faith with different attributes that is just as wonderful and powerful as the faith that they have experienced maybe earlier in their lives. That's very helpful. So mm -hmm. just, yeah, I'm in this fireside and mm -hmm. I think the first part of your talk is mm -hmm. introducing what a faith crisis is, mm -hmm. um, faith transition, faith shift, and mm -hmm. Just keep us keep us at your fireside. Okay, so I I do dive in pretty quickly into this idea of um, of faith development, and faith is just one aspect of this development. There's a whole field of um, of psychology that is dedicated to adult development. It used to be maybe 50, 60 years ago, um, you when you would have a class in psychology and in development, it was child psychology, child development, you would get to the adult and then, you know, that's just kind of its own psychology. And, and um, what uh, researchers have started to notice over the past and really pay attention to over the past 50, 60 years is that um, there seems to be a progression in our, the way we see the world, even as adults. So, um, and the, and, you know, we could do a whole podcast and there are many good ones out there <laughs> about faith development, but, um, I would just say in a nutshell to understand what this means, picture when you are a child, you have a view of the world that is very self, it's very, um, focused on self and you don't really even understand as, as a, as an infant that someone else is a different being than you are. And as a toddler, you put your hands over your eyes and you think that no one can see you. You know, you don't understand that other people have different experience than you. Um, as we grow, that broadens. And um, then we, we can understand that we're part of, not only are we an individual, then we're part of a group. And we have certain um, aspects about our group. And there's us and then there's them. And as you continue to develop, the one thing that seems to be common to all of psychology is that your perspective widens to include more and more and more and include more other people, other groups, other situations. And, um, and what is not clear is exactly what makes certain people develop to a certain point and, and not. But we do have some very specific research by a man named Fowler who um, – did some research in the early 80s specifically around faith and spirituality in this developmental model. And he found that faith goes through this model. And um, the thing that I 
I love, I have a love-hate relationship with these developmental models. <laughs> and one of the things that is problematic with it is that we are LDS people and we are Americans and we have this idea that higher is better. More developed is better. And what I try to tell people is this is not, these, these stages of faith are not a ladder to the celestial kingdom. I like that. That's great, Jana. Yeah. So what Fowler noted is he, he divided these into six pretty distinct stages of faith. I don't spend a lot of time focusing on stages one and two. Almost all adults get to three and, um, and they're pretty juvenile stages of faith, one and two. Um, what we see in, in adults in, in the church is a lot of stage three and then a little bit of four and five and, um, almost no six. There are very few people that ever, ever really fall into that category. So I spend most time kind of concentrating on those stages of three, four, and five and understanding, um, because it just helps us have more empathy for one another and recognize that, you know, just as you could give a fact to a Democrat and a Republican, and they are both going to make different meaning out of that fact because of the way they see the world. This is how we are as humans. And so you, you tell something to someone in stage three, and you say that same thing to someone in stage four and stage five, and it means something very different. It's very helpful. Yeah. So, and, it, and, and all of those stages have really wonderful gifts and they have real problems. So it's not that anyone at any higher stage, more developed stage is any better. I know people who are in stage three and by the way, most people stay in stage three their entire lives. And there are wonderful people who have fulfilling giving lives and wonderful faith and deep connection with God and with our savior at stage three. And the same is true for people in these other stages. Um, and there are people in stage in some, maybe a higher stage who are a complete mess <laughs> because they really haven't done their personal development, you know? Um, so it, it, it's, it's not that it's, um, tell us what these stages are. Okay. At. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Maybe so, start with three if you want to. Yeah. So stage three is um, is the stage that, if you can imagine, most organizations thrive at stage three. So most religions, and I, this is not particular. I mean, this this research was not done by an LDS man. He was a Methodist. Um, so we see this across the board. But most organized religion lives in a very comfortable place of stage three. And in stage three... We really rely on authority that is outside ourselves to let us know what is what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, um, where the lines are. We love lines. We love structure. We love to know exactly. Um, we have to, we love to have certainty about all of our beliefs, and we really like conformity. We like to go into a Sunday school class and have everyone agree. <laughs> and come to consensus and know that we're right, you know. Um, stage four is a place where we start to bring that um, authority inward. So we're relying a lot more on our individual connection with the world, with deity, with 
um, how we view things. So we start noticing that there's something really reliable within ourselves. Um, and stage four can come with a lot of conflict because sometimes we start to maybe have ideas that feel different from what we're hearing at church, what we've always believed, what we've always known. And we, it, it can feel, you'll often hear the term, the a dark night of the soul. You get a little lost. It's very common for people to lose connection with God, to pray and pray and pray and, and feel like they're not getting any answers. They're not having that connection and they wonder where God has gone. And many people really wonder that and, and maybe can lose their faith completely during this stage. Um, because it's, it's really, really difficult, but it's, it's a period of deconstruction, um, which it, 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 when you're in stage three, looking at someone in stage four, it can feel very threatening, very negative. It can feel like they are doing something wrong. It can feel like they're, um, under an influence. Um, you know, we hear it often the influence of the adversary, um, and I can tell you that's very painful to a person in four because a person in four feels like they are following um, good principles and good influences more than they ever have before in their life from a really, really de deeply held place in their heart. So there's a lot. What I find is that this is the spot for the most misunderstanding between people um, because what happens is we start to have a bit of contempt that goes both ways. So the people in stage three, looking at someone go through a stage four experience, will look at them and say, you, you know, yeah, you're, you're doing something wrong. They usually don't want to ask too much about it. It feels uncomfortable. You don't know how to, how to approach it. Um, and so we make a lot of assumptions. This person has, uh, wants to sin. This person has been lazy with their testimony. They have not been doing the right things. Um, and we make, we make a lot of assumptions, the majority of which I, there are always exceptions, you know, but, um, the majority of the time it's just not the case. Uh, but it, it, it creates a, a, a space where we start to look down on these people in some way. And we not knowing it and not really trying to do it, but we hold ourselves above them a little bit. And on the opposite side, I see the same kind of contempt. People who are starting to go through this questioning process have a lot of contempt for people who aren't willing to look at all of the information that they have in the way that they have now, and they assume that no one has. They assume that they haven't read anything or or thought about things themselves. They this is where they start accusing people of being blind followers, and you know that doesn't feel good to a person they in stage a blind three. Follower. No, yeah. we. No one in stage three feels that that's what they are. We are all thinking people with, you know, our own journeys. And it's, it's, it's not a fair thing to say. Um, but, and that's where the contempt comes in with the people in stage four. So relationships become really fraught uh, during a time when someone is going through a period of deconstruction of what they've always believed, just trying to really bring that inside to say, what really do I believe? That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. And then um, do you want me to talk about stage five? Yeah. I just think about my own mm -hmm. journey. And so I'm ref I've am i been aware of these, but you're mm -hmm. the first person on the podcast mm -hmm. or in my life that I've really talked to mm -hmm. that understands these stages. And mm -hmm. 
My first comment is I love you're not shaming anybody for any stage. Mm -hmm. And you set a great foundation there that we shouldn't be trying to draw people to our stage or, or you know, say this is the right stage. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very helpful. And I love where you've said in Western world we have the higher the number, the better. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I think I think of my desire to run on Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. I've always, since my mission ran on Sunday mornings, I ran every day of the week. It's not like I just ran on Sunday. And it was just part of my spiritual preparation for the day. Now I walk because mm -hmm. I don't run anymore. I walk every day of the week, including Sunday. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's an example of me taking authority inward. I don't think the church has ever said you can't run on Sunday morning mm -hmm. or jog. Right. But we're but I've always been aware that people in my neighborhood would see me running on mm -hmm. Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And I've always just felt an authority, sort of I'm taking I, I, the wording you use was sort of I'm I'm taking authority for my own spirituality, and this is something that really works for me to prepare spiritually for the day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think it's a great example. Um, you know, when I was a, I was I've been a gospel doctrine teacher, and I remember preparing for a lesson in the New Testament, and um, feeling this really strongly that sometimes, and I, this was before I knew anything about stages. <laughs> you know, this was was long before I was doing the work that I'm doing, but. Um, it really struck me that we can fall into a place where, you know, Sabbath observance is a perfect example where, you know, we haven't been given, this is exactly what you must do on the Sabbath day in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. We've been given a principle of keeping it holy and we, for the most part, are allowed to just govern ourselves, right, with what that means for us. And sometimes it can actually be, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it, I think there's a negative connotation to it, but it can be maybe an easy way out to say, you know what, the most strict observance of this is best. So I'm not, you know, we can, we can say that it's better for us to not run or it's better for us to um, wear, no. wear our Sabbath clothes all, all day that, or, or never watch TV, never watch Sunday. TV. Yeah. And we can make all these rules. And I'm not saying that those aren't, I don't want to say those aren't great rules because for some people it is exactly what they need. But what I'm asking for people to do is have a deeper conversation with themselves and with the Lord to say what really is right for me and why. So that would be kind of a stage four conversation is what really does that look like for me? And can I allow myself to do that without wondering what the neighbor is thinking, seeing me in my running clothes outside my house stretching before I go for a run, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it's actually, if, 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 we, if we, and this is a stage three, three kind of a thing to do is to say, well, I'm just going to be the most, I will be the most righteous by being the, the most strict it's actually robbing yourself of this opportunity to have a conversation and a deeper connection with God to know really what is right for you and what would be pleasing to the Lord in your Sabbath observance. It's very helpful. If I'm in charge of the church, mm -hmm. which I'm not, <laughs> I would be nervous about my members going into stage four because it sounds like I'm gonna if they stay in stage three, it's more likely they're gonna stay in the faith. Mm -hmm. And if they go into stage four, and you know more about this than I do. Mm -hmm. Some may stay, but some may leave. 
And you're absolutely right. You are and, not wrong with and that. So mm -hmm. I don't know what the organization knowing, you know, if I, I don't know what to say about that. And yeah. um, I don't think an organization, I don't think the church would want to do things to necessarily not people want to grow spiritually because it's sometimes the growth spiritually that moves them from three to four. That's exactly and, right. And so it's not like they're doing bad things to move from three to four. It's just part of their spiritual growth. And and I love the way you say it's not like stage three people that never go to four aren't growing spiritually. They just right. they have different gifts and different way they see the world and desires. And so that's absolutely I right. don't know quite, you know, I guess. And so I guess the organization or if I were a local priesthood leader, I want to be able to have I probably would not want to put up systems in place where people don't go from three to four because that's part of spiritual growth. But I'd want to have, like you're doing, better tools mm -hmm for local leaders, for families to minister to stage four people so they have mm -hmm. a framework to manage that stage. And, and I mean, I'd love to see more people stay in the church. Um, Absolutely. I, and and, and you, I'd honor people that leave, but so I don't, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. yeah. So part of this is sort of what do you do ministerially, mm -hmm. if that's a word, to stage four people <laughs> yes. to help them you know, find an authentic way to stay in the church. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. It's one of the hardest things we face. And it is really hard from a stage three to look at it as someone in a stage four and think it's a good thing. It doesn't feel like a good thing, but we, what we're not seeing is what staying in stage three can set us up for. And I, and, and I also want to make a, a quick distinction. I see people, just because you're going through a, a faith crisis does not mean you are moving to stage four. I see people in stage three go through a faith crisis all the time. And, and faith crisis in stage three um, has some particular problems. So imagine a stage three person, I, and this is an example, might say, to themselves and be thinking, if I could, if the world knew what I knew, they would all be LDS. They would get baptized tomorrow if they really knew what I knew. Then they find something that is disturbing to them. You know, I've seen people just preparing for a Sunday school lesson that come across information that's new to them that then throws them. And, and suddenly the questions become overwhelming very quickly. And they typically think in a very black and white way, it's all true, it's all false. So if there's something that goes against, if something they feel really challenges the truth, they may flip to false very, very quickly. Interesting. And that person then, where just before they were saying, if the world knew what I knew, they'd all be LDS, they would say, if, the, if all those LDS people knew what I knew, they would leave immediately. But you can see that the way they're seeing is exactly the same. It doesn't create a shift in the way that you're, you're seeing the world and the consciousness. You still think that you have all the answers, that you're right, and that everyone should see it your way on both sides. That's very helpful. So ministering mm -hmm. to people in a faith crisis, if they're three or four, mm -hmm. is very different. It is very different. But there are very similar things that we can do, which is to try to recognize our own contempt. As I mentioned, we have contempt for people who go through this. Recognize that, set that aside, and learn to try to see these people through the love of God's eyes. 
I mean, that's, that's always the right answer, regardless of what the problem is, in my opinion, (laughs) is that try to see this person as a child of God who has come to the place that they are in their faith, honestly, because by and large, the majority of people, um, are really honestly seeking, whether they hit this in stage three or four, um, they are honest seekers of goodness and truth and what has brought them to that is this amazing upbringing we get within our LDS structure. That is one of the beautiful bonuses of stage three. And so that's helpful for me because my Mm -hmm. assumption, if I were in charge of the organization is to keep everybody in stage three, but that's not true. It's not. And I have, because if you have one, I sometimes call them dominoes. If one domino falls Mm -hmm. for someone who sends me more black and white, all the dominoes fall and there's no faith any. There's no belief versus, I don't know if a state, I've sort of framed up my own testimony at times that has a couple fallen dominoes, but a lot that have got really, really deep roots. Mm -hmm. And it keeps me a pretty traditional believing member. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the framework I've adopted. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that fits into a nice stage, but it's just sort of what's work, what works for me. Yeah. Well, it it definitely has elements of some of these other stages where we start to be able to hold a both and kind of a, Mm. of an idea and really stage five, and, and I also want to be clear, it's not like I'm all in stage three and the next day I'm all in stage four and then I'm all in stage five. We all have aspects of our personalities that live in all of these. That's very helpful. And, and really what, what I'm saying, if someone is stage four, what I mean is that 50% of the time that's where they're accessing things from and maybe 25% of the time they're thinking in stage three and 25% of the time they're thinking in stage five. Talk, do you want to talk so. more about four? Do you want to talk about five? Um, well, I wanted to say one thing in response to what you just said with stage three, because I think it's important for us to also understand some of the downfalls of stage three, where you're saying like leaders, it seems like it would be in their interest to keep people in stage three. And I, I think that that is true. And I can see really good reason for it. You know, um, I, I think that we as parents really love, um, Satan's plan for our parents, for our, for our children, for raising our children. We really just want to keep everybody safe. And I think when you're a leader in the church, you have that same impulse to like, this is my flock. I have responsibility. I want to keep them all on the right path. And this is, I think, a, a good impulse. But um, really what we know from the gospel is the importance of agency, the importance of giving people agency. God has given that to us. He has trusted us with that kind of a journey. And as leaders, we need to trust others um, with that journey as well. And that there, there's such beauty that comes from a deepening spirituality that um, perhaps it's worth the risk just as giving us our free agency is worth, worth the risk of losing us. Um, so I, I just wanted to bring up a quote. So I just want to highlight what some of the dangers of stage three might be because there are dangers. And I think it's important for us to see this, um, as, especially as leaders, that maybe it's not just best to keep everyone there. Um, not that you have, it's actually an illusion to think you have control over any of this. That's interesting. Yeah. You can't make someone go to another stage if they're not ready. Um, but, uh, This is a quote from Scott Braithwaite. He's an associate psychology professor at BYU. And during education week, um, a couple of years ago in August, he spoke about these Fowler stages of faith. And you can look 
up his talk on um, LDS.org or whatever they're, I don't know if they've moved to the new moniker yet, but um, this is his quote. Stage three faith, I think, opens you up to being the most vulnerable to a faith crisis because it it establishes a set of expectations that are impossible to achieve. People at this stage live in a world that's binary. It's black and white where the church is all good and couldn't possibly do anything not good. And the world is wicked and bad. Most people remain throughout their lives in Fowler Stage 3 faith, which is a synthetic conventional faith characterized by conformity to authority, a strong cultural element to religious life, an us-versus-the-world perspective, and ignoring any conflicts with one's beliefs due to the fear or threat from inconsistencies. Wow. So um, there are so many beautiful things about Stage 3, and it's also a vulnerable place to be. So then I think of our responsibility as parents. You've got mm-hmm. three kids that are younger mm-hmm. than, you've got kids, I think, 11, 13, 15? Yes. And our youngest is leaving on a mission in a month, mm-hmm. so of six. So our families are in different stages. But mm-hmm. then, and this would be a whole different podcast, mm-hmm. if you're a young, if you're a parent mm-hmm. um, wanting to raise children that have a better chance to stay in our faith, which I think is a good goal for a parent. If It's certainly mm-hmm. been the goal of our parents, mm-hmm. of my wife and I, we've loved our church and have wanted to create um, an increased chance our children would stay and experience the same feelings and blessings we've experienced. Then I think of the parenting mm-hmm. aspects of that. Any things you want to share about that? Yeah. So I, I mean, I do think that is that natural impulse. And um, I don't know if you've spoken on the pad- podcast before about um, Jana Reese's new book and the, yeah. the survey that she's done about the younger generations. No, in we haven't. Jenna's been on the podcast and mm. referenced it before the book mm. came out, but not mm. since the book came out. Yeah. There's some wonderful research in there for people to really want to understand um, some of the attitude shifts that are happening because um, she was able to interview, um, this survey interviewed people, um, regardless of whether they have, they have people who are currently within the faith and also people who have left. And they, um, just asked about the attitudes about their faith and, um, and then the, the results they showed by generation. So they've got, you know, the baby boomers, yeah. the Gen X and the millennials, and you can definitely see a progression in the, the attitudes of people. And one interpretation of that is that, you know, those young people are just giving over to the ways of the world and, right. it's, and we've got to stop the bleeding. Right. Um, the other way that I tend to look at things is that, in looking at stages of consciousness and these progressions, this development through stages, what we do know is that not only do individuals go through these stages, but groups go through these stages. And um, and, and younger people tend to get to more progressed stages more quickly. So one of the things that you could say about the way that millennials see the world is they are taking in more of the world. They are taking in more people's experience than just they than just our LDS culture's experience. Um, they are uh, very connected to everyone in the world. And so there, there are certain aspects of their personalities that are very, very different. And I think every parent who's ever lived on the planet has had to deal with this 
difference in consciousness in the way the next generation thinks. And we are always threatened by the way the next generation thinks, <laughs> right? Um, so I think part of the job of a parent and part of the challenge of being a parent is um, recognizing when we are trying to really go through Satan's plan to keep everyone in the faith and everyone doing it the way that worked for us. Um, and when uh, maybe we're acting out of a little bit of fear in not letting them have their own journey and have their own attitudes about things and, um, you know, get really curious about that. And, you know, when I'm speaking these things, I'm speaking from an older, maybe adolescent stage. I'm not saying we shouldn't be teaching our kids principles, um, because I absolutely think it's vital to our good progression to have good structure and principles and, and, and teaching truths and, and things to them, but also embracing the time when adolescence is a time of, of questioning. I think we all know this, you know, every, every adolescent looks at their parent and thinks, what in the world? <laughs> we all go through this. It's a period, a little bit of disorder and deconstruction of what you've learned as a child in your home. And that's actually appropriate and it's good and it's okay. And I think we've all had that, those people with older children know we've had those scary, scary moments during adolescence. And then they turn age into adults and develop and go, oh, oh good. Phew. It's really, <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. of a stage three parent and a stage four parent, mm -hmm. um, that may have different feelings about um, how to raise children faithfully in the faith. Yeah. And you probably Absolutely. counsel those parents. And I'm Absolutely. thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of Elder Ballard's comment that mm. you're familiar with mm. to the, I'm going to read that here. I dug it out mm -hmm. while you were talking because mm -hmm. it reminded me when mm -hmm. he spoke to the CES teachers mm -hmm. yeah. in 2016. And he yeah. said, gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and the teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and the teacher bore his testimony as a response and tended to avoid the issue. Gone are the days when students were protected from people who attacked the church. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the Lord provided his timeless and timeless, timely and timeless counsel to teachers. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently to teach one another the words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom seek ye by learning, even by study and also by faith. And I love that. And that mm -hmm. to me is what you're, um, and what you're teaching. And I think he goes on in this same talk to, you know, to invite the CES instructors to know the essays like the back of your hand. Yes. And I know our youngest son came home from seminary and was taught about Joseph Smith's polygamy in seminary. Mm -hmm. And that was the first, I think I've talked about that a little bit but it hasn't been mm -hmm. something I've talked about a lot. And I was just so grateful that he learned about that from his seminary teacher mm -hmm. and had a framework to process that versus hearing it later on or being surprised or mm -hmm. even bearing testimony on his mission that Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist and then came home and learned, oh my gosh, he actually really was. And that's not anti-Mormon literature. That's just the facts of our church. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very... And so I'm thinking we're making progress, but I think... Mm -hmm. If our goal is to keep people in stage three, we may never expose them to the essays or some of the more complicated things, but I yep. think we need to yep. so they have a framework to process the facts of our faith in a, in a, in a logical way, in a 
and an age-appropriate time. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't tell you how many people have come into my office who have come across some piece of information like that that they've never been exposed to before and that they've defended exactly the opposite on their missions or to other people who have challenged them. And then they just feel uh, they feel deceived. They yeah. feel it, 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 they just feel awful about it. And it, it breeds a lot of resentment. Um, and I think that the days of being able to just say anything that challenges the way we view our faith and our history and the way we've been taught it through our correlation, um, you know, lessons over the past several decades, um, to label that anti-Mormon literature, I think, is, a, is something we are prone to do and something that is very dangerous to do. Because what was considered anti-Mormon literature when, you know, facts from anti-Mormon literature when I was young is now on, in, the, in the gospel topics essays. Yeah. And they're being taught in seminary and they are in books from faithful historians. And so um, it is something that we need to be less afraid of. Um, yes, challenges can come from those kinds of that kind of research and great. It is an invitation into a deeper understanding and a, a deeper struggle with um, faith where we come out the other end um, with the possibility of it being far more rich and deep and meaningful and, um, you know, coming from a really internally driven place. I like that. My wife and I have both, like you have, have read the gospel essays. Mm -hmm. Gospel topic essays. Gos gospel topics essays. I think. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's what they're called. And um, I remember teaching elders quorum about a year ago and, and I didn't ask a poll of how many of the elders knew of the essays, but I did talk about them, but I didn't feel impressed to just say, you ought to go, I'll read them. Mm -hmm. I, I said, you ought to say a prayer mm -hmm. and sort of decide if this is something that you feel you want to understand better. Mm -hmm. And that was just a feeling that it, maybe it's not right for everybody. And it's not like you're not faithful or you're not intellectually sound if you don't mm -hmm. read them. And I think some people get shamed in our church if they don't know the gospel topic mm -hmm. essays and they're not intellectual or intelligent. Mm -hmm. And so I love, that's the same thing I think you're mm -hmm. trying to do is it may not be everybody's deal, but I think more mm -hmm. parents and more local leaders are becoming familiar with that mm -hmm. content um, because of they recognize their responsibility to help others that are being exposed to that content and know mm -hmm. what it is. And so any more thoughts on that before you talk about stage five? And I want to yeah. make sure we get to North Star and, yeah. and there's a whole kind of LGBTQ, yes. um, component of this podcast I mm -hmm. you have some expertise in. Yes. Yeah. So I would just say that, um, to that point that it's a good thing for us to recognize that there are many different ways to have faith. Um, when you have the benefit, and I, and I do think there are great benefits to this correlation way that we've been teaching, um, you know, we all feel like we have this really great way to understand things that we can hold on to. Um, but I think that we are also moving to a place where we need to recognize that there are many different ways to look at faith, many different ways to experience faith. Um, at stage three, and I think the way we ta have talked about it historically in our culture, um, we tend to think of faith as synonymous with belief. 
We talk about testimony and testimony means I have this concrete belief of these five things, you know, and we, we even make the little puppets on the finger and each finger is the thing that we believe, you know, with the restoration and, um, and on and on, but they're concrete things that we believe. And, uh, I like to point out that the, the word that in Greek that was translated into faith in the new Testament is the word pistis. And that word in Greek connotes a lot more than just belief. It includes belief, but it's also a word that really um, holds the feeling of a relationship with God. So it's a trust. It's a um, it's God's trust in us and our trust in God. And so. I like to say as people really start having problems with maybe these five things that, oh, I don't have a testimony and that means I don't have faith. I like to point out that that may feel that way to us the way we've defined it, but faith is so much bigger. And it does not mean that people who are questioning maybe the truth claims or other things about the church or maybe the way we do things um, culturally, that does not mean these are not people of faith who have deep connection and the the capacity for deep connection and faith um, That's very in, helpful. in deity. Yeah. Stage five. Okay. So stage five is where some of this starts to come together. And, and stage five really is the first stage where um, you start to have a really deep honoring of both stage three and four. So you can start to see when you're in, when you when you enter stage four. I don't know if this is evolution. I don't know if this is psychology and ego, <laughs> but there is something about the human experience and the human um, psyche that makes us look at stage three and 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 want to reject all of it. This is part of that deconstruction, right? And to see only the bad things about stage three and only the good things about stage four. It's stage five that starts to calm down and you can look and say, these are these things in stage three are beautiful and these stage things in stage four are beautiful. And it's the first time you can really start to hold both of those things. You can start to hold paradox. And this is where we can start to lean into resolving cognitive dissonance without throwing out wholesale one or the other of the things that are maybe challenging us. Keep talking about that. Um, mm -hmm. So if I understand stage five, mm -hmm. it's, um, uh, I, I'm using the term intellectual maturity, but that's elevating stage five. <laughs> it's it's being able to see people in stage four and stage three and be and yeah. not try to draw people to either stage and that's see right. the good in both stages. And allow people to have their experience and honor them for exactly where they are. I talked to a fellow who stepped away from the church and mm -hmm. he said, you know, I recognize that I was going to church and, mm -hmm. and I wanted to expose others to the complicated things I was aware of. Mm -hmm. And he, and in a, I think a very mature moment, he said, they don't want that. That's right. They don't want that kind of experience at church. And who is it to, what right do I have to mm -hmm. try to go around popping all their bubbles? That's right. Not in not meaning they're not intellectually smart or they're not faithful or they're not wanting to learn. It's just the experience they're looking for at church mm -hmm. is the, what you've described. And I thought that was very mm -hmm. thoughtful of him. And I mm -hmm. wish he had found a way to stay, mm -hmm. but I recognize how hard it was for him mm -hmm. with a different belief at that point. Um, so I like this stage five mm -hmm. is where you're 
you know, and I do see people that are in stage four or deconstruction stage that are learning new factual history about the church that mm -hmm. naturally want to have all the other people around them right. know all the same stuff. Right. And it probably Absolutely. takes great discipline to say, that's maybe not my job. And with young children in the home, that's mm -hmm. maybe, you know, I'm sure that's there's an honest desire as a parent to want to expose your kids to everything. But I think you have to do that in with your companion on kind of the same page as possible. And that's probably what you do a lot of life coaching. Yeah. Well, one, one of the a spiritual leader that whom I love that is um, actually not LDS, but he's had a lot of, of really beautiful writings about spiritualities, um, a Catholic priest by the name of Father Richard Rohr. And one of the things that he says that I love is that if we want people to be spiritually curious, if we, you know, and, um, and I think this applies outside of spirituality as well. But if you want to raise children who are spir spiritually curious, don't answer their questions before they've asked them. And I, I think this, um, there's a great thing to this, especially for people in stage four, they're in a mixed faith marriage and they just want to expose their children to everything is, you know, if someone's not asking, if your spouse is not asking, if your neighbor is not asking, if the Sunday school class is not asking, it may not be the place to spout all of the new things that you've learned. And that would be a stage five behavior. Correct. And 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 again, and people in stage three, you would think that, again, we're this progressive, progressive people. You would think that people in stage three would look at stage five and go, ooh, this is a good thing. I want to get to stage five. It is, it is also experienced as threatening. People in stage five look like they're maybe not as righteous. They're maybe not as serious. They're not as dedicated um, because they are less concerned with transactional um, parts of, you know, I must check off the boxes and be all the things and do all the things. It's They are, um, and they're not throwing those things out as well. Like I said, it's a both and kind of an experience where they understand the importance of that. And just as I think the Savior was trying to teach the Pharisees, there is a deeper way to think about rules. And there is a, a very responsible, compassionate place to maybe bake, break or bend rules. Um, oxes do get in the mire. And we have to start thinking in a deeper way to handle deeper concerns. So stage five starts to really be able to handle that. What is stage six? So stage, stage I six. I can't imagine we, what it is. I know. Now, what is that? What right? is that? <laughs> yeah. And I, I want, I, I can't remember the percentage. I think it's like 0.02% of uh, people in this, these surveys have ever reached that. But th the best way to explain it is it's someone who has given themselves completely over. Um, their ego is no longer running them and they are giving everything to mankind. So, and they are so out of step with humanity that we, they often are killed or martyred. So think of people like Gandhi and Jesus and Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa. And, Mother Teresa. Yeah. These are people who um, get to a place where they just give everything over to helping their fellow man. That's cool. They give everything over to helping their fellow men mm -hmm. and their authority is, you know, with themselves and with God. And they're so confident in what they're doing yeah. that they're doing things that perhaps their organization or society says is not right. That's right. And, and, and they don't worry. And time is on their side. Yes. <laughs> and maybe they don't worry. They don't worry so much about the rules because they are so unified and in, of one mind with goodness and love 
that it's not really a concern. I think we get concerned when we see people starting to break rules. You Do know? you think there's stage six? Is it that stage six that are at, stage that are in our faith? I would have no way of even answering that or knowing. It's 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 entirely possible, but it's very 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 rare. Interesting to see anyone who gets there. I've liked this book, and I don't know if you have any comments on it by Bruce and Mary Hafen. Faith is not blind. Mm. Um, it's been a helpful book to me to kind of one of the peril, one of the things these two authors talk about is the Kirtland Temple dedication that was just this wonderful everything worked, credible visions, community involvement, and contrasting that with Nauvoo mm -hmm. and how complicated that was. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, all the things that were happening in the Nauvoo temple were happening the same time they were leaving. And it was such a different experience. And these authors kind of talk about how so for some members of our church, it is very simple. It gets very complicated mm -hmm. like in Nauvoo. And then there's back to a simplicity of being at peace with all the complicated stuff. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's similar to the Fowler stages. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a stage five mm -hmm. from three to four to five. I don't know if there's parallels there, but it was helpful for me mm -hmm. just in my own journey of, of being in a Kirtland temple experience for much of my mm -hmm. uh, membership in the church. to so now seeing some of the complicated things, mm -hmm. especially around LGBTQ yes. and trying to now, you know, and just navigating that. Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I reach out for models that give me framework to just process my own journey yeah. as, as what I consider myself to be a very faithful member of the church. Mm -hmm. well, I think this, this is a perfect segue into, um, into that. One of the things I think it's really important for, um, those, uh, faithful people who have not experienced challenges, these deep, deep challenges to faith, faith crisis, um, to understand. And I think it really applies also to, um, uh, the LGBT Q, um, community and, and people going through that and trying for, for people who, um, have never experienced that as well to understand that, um, you know, the, the gospel works really, really well. And, and meaning like the, our, the way we do it culturally in the church works really, really well for so many people. And if stage three is comfortable for you and it stays comfortable for you, in all likelihood, you have all of the conditions in your life um, to have that work for you. So, um, you know, if you have specific um, aspects to your character, you know, characteristics in your life or personality types, there are certain personality types for whom the church just works. If, if you're a very organized person, if you are an achievement oriented person, um, if you're a love structure and, and love obedience, it works so well for you. If you're a person who tends to want to do your own thing and you're a very creative type or, you know, perhaps you have, you, you're LGBTQ or you have some other aspect of who you are that doesn't fit nicely into the way we do things and the way we understand things, um, then it's, it starts to be more understandable why a faith crisis would come on some of those people. So I like people to really consider maybe you know, it, it, it can tend to be a politically charged word, but I don't know a better word for it. Um, but to consider the privilege that you have within yourself of 
why something may work for you that doesn't work for another person. So one of the things, the, the ways I see this play out is um, my child is starting to have deep questions about the church. And so I see a talk that's been given about maybe about faith questioning or, um, you know, about some other issue that this person is having an issue with. And so I send them that general conference talk or I send them that ensign talk. And what they don't understand is when that other person is reading it, their experience has been so different. And um, the very things that bring you comfort as a faithful member bring distress to this other person. And we can't even fathom what that is. We have no way of understanding what could possibly be causing discomfort to someone else unless we ask them what their experience is. And we really start to listen to what they have to say because they have access to something that you are blind to. That's cool. And so you should just, you should just say that three mm -hmm. times in a row. I agree <laughs> right. with that so much, Jenna. Yeah. And I agree with your remedy mm -hmm. that we have to ask mm -hmm. and we have to listen. We have to develop spiritual maturity to hear someone else's experience within our faith. Absolutely. And listen to them without the idea of I'm going to bring them to my way of thinking. And one of the things that I, it's, it's such a, a double edged sword. I see so many people with family members who are maybe deciding to leave the faith. And the only thing that keeps them going is the thought that that person might return. And, um, I, in my experience, some do it's, it's, um, when they do, it's typically with a very different looking faith than the one that they started with. And so setting up expectations for other people and saying, well, I'm just going to love them through this because if I love them enough, they'll come back, sets both you up for some heartache and it sets up a, a situation where we're not truly meeting the other person where they are and accepting them. And suddenly your love, which I think is genuine, can be felt as very conditional over time. I really like that. I'm just scrolling to a quote here that I screen captured mm -hmm. from a BYU student um, that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. LDS Living ended up publishing it. We as members of the Mormon church need to stop focusing on we need to love people because our love will bring them back mm -hmm. to the church and instead focus on we need to love people because they deserve to be loved. That's right. It's just what you said. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. We we really do. And it's it's really, as Christians, what we're called to do. We are called to just have the love of God for every person. And I've noticed my relationship with my neighbors has shifted, my neighbors that aren't of my faith. And I don't, I'm not agenda-based in interest in their lives and reaching out to them with an agenda to bring them to the church. I love the church. Mm-hmm. But I just look at them as they're worthy to be loved mm -hmm. and they're wonderful people. And I, what can I learn from my neighbors that aren't members of my mm -hmm. faith? And, and as I sort of develop more meaningful, unagenda relationships, I've actually found more opportunities to talk about the mm -hmm. church because mm -hmm. they're more open to me and I That's understand right. better their needs and how potentially our church could meet their needs. But I don't do that. It, it, that's still not agenda-based to get to that spot. Right. It's just because they're worthy of friendship and of love. Mm -hmm. And as I do that more, I find more chances to, to be potentially just talk about 
but I also am willing to understand how what their faith can do to help me too. Absolutely. There's and so much we can learn. that I can mm-hmm. learn from other faith. Absolutely. Talk Absolutely. about LGBTQ, because mm-hmm. I think before we started, you, I think you kind of shared that perhaps mm-hmm. they're, they've mature typically quicker because mm-hmm. the institution sometimes can't meet all their needs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're talking about. Sometimes yep. those of us where the institution and the church meet all our needs mm-hmm. never have to sort of go deep and mm-hmm. and sort of develop something even maybe more with Heavenly Father and sort of figure things out. And and my experience meeting with LGBTQ people is their spiritual depth is often higher mm-hmm. than their straight friends for, at the same stage mm-hmm. of life. Absolutely. I mean, I think anytime you're in a space where um, you have, like I said, characteristics and um, personality, um, you know, gender and sexual orientation characteristics that don't fit that mold, you are maybe invited uh, more quickly into developing something deeper to be able to make it all work for yourself. You know, the um, our dear LGBTQ brothers and sisters are left with such challenges. Um, what of, do you tell them at North Star? So when you're yeah. invited to speak at North Star, give us a little bit. Yeah. You know, just insights on what you say to give them hope and faith. and Yeah. So I, I kind of talk about this faith development there as well. But just to lay the groundwork to say that, um, you know, we talk about cognitive dissonance, like it's this theoretical idea in our head and two ideas aren't matching. But, um, you know, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters feel this. Um, on such a deeper level because it's, it's dealing with primary parts of their identity and, you know, their, their gender identity and sexual orientation is such a deep part of who they are. And as well as if they're raised in, uh, you know, to be a faithful Latter-day Saint, that is also so deeply part of their identity. And when you have those parts of you that are so deeply held and don't have an easy way to, um, to come together, to work well together. And then they're invited into a deeper space of coming to a both and kind of a place with these things. And, and I talk about them having those different choices that I talked about with cognitive dissonance. You know, you can either embrace all of what it means to express your gender identity and your sexual orientation and throw away the church, or you can embrace the church and throw away all of what that means to have that LGBTQ identity, or you can learn to start moving into embracing a place of both because you're missing out on something both ways if you throw all of one or the other away. And there are benefits to throwing one or or the other away. So for instance, um, if you, um, you know, if you leave the church behind, you feel a great sense of autonomy and living authentically. And, um, you know, there's a lot of real joy that can come from feeling like you are um, living in a way that is uh, consistent. And the downside is you lose those connections, you lose the, the, the social connections, you lose the, the connections to the gospel, 
um, that can be so rewarding and fulfilling. And uh, over time that is felt, um, the other direction, it's, it's wonderful if you can, you know, just kind of set aside your, your identity of your LGBTQ identity, um, then you get to fit in with the crowd. You get to have everyone love you. You get to have everyone support what you're doing. Um, you get to, you know, have all of the experiences of life that you felt like you should have had. The big downside is there is always some part of yourself that is going to be avoiding or denying a very core part of yourself. So what does that look like to have a both end? It's hard for most of us to imagine because this is not a way of thinking that we talk about that is readily available to us. We live in a very binary world. Um, we, we follow Greek philosophers and we're all in our head all the time. <laughs> and our, our minds, our thinking minds want to make differentiation. It's how we make sense of the world. Um, and where I find that the center for leaning into something that is both and, it may not make cognitive sense, but your heart can make sense of it. You know, when you go deep into connection and love and relationship, these are things that I, I call them uh, non-dual ways of thinking. You know, it's a non-dual experience. When, I mean, these are the kinds of experiences that you cannot put into words. So, um, you know, try to explain to me, Richard, your a spiritual experience that you've had and help me totally understand exactly what you experienced at that time. Yeah. It's like telling you how to taste salt if you've never tasted salt. <laughs> right? I mean, and there are these certain things in life that are like that, our relationships with God, love of another person, suffering and death. I think all uh, there are just certain experiences in relationship that you really can't fully explain. You can't really fully explain what love is to another person adequately in words. So this is the place where we have to start to go and to trust and to really nurture relationship with God on a personal level. One of the things that, um, that is really common, like I said, in stage three is to lead with authority and listen to other people. And this is a very appropriate place for us to do, to have a foundation and to grow up is to have our parents be our authorities and, the, and, 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 you know, and prophets and, and leaders to be our authorities because they're, they're teaching us good things. But one of the things that I would really love for us all to understand about general conference is that it is a general conference that is spoken to everyone. And we all have different experiences and challenges and, um, things that we need to develop in our own spirituality. Um, there's some beautiful quotes, um, that I, I may actually have here, um, from Bruce R. McConkie, from Joseph F. Smith that talk about how we really should be prophets in our own affairs, prophets in our own lives. Um, you know, Joseph Smith, one of the revolutionary things he did in the restoration was to bring that deep connection between us and God back. And he also expressed that he wished we were all prophets. He wanted that for everybody, for us to have that deep connection with God. And um, so what, what, I, what I talk to people about is spiritually maturing is getting to a place where 
we are leading with our own personal revelation. And then I talk about it as a tricycle. If you imagine the front wheel being our, our personal revelation, we still have these back wheels of scripture and um, of prophetic revelation that can balance us out so that we don't just, you know, I think the fear is, oh, well, you can convince yourself of anything through your own personal revelation that anything is is true. And 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 you can, you know, that you can become the man who um, kidnapped Elizabeth Smart if you're listening to your own revelations, right? So that's why there's this balance of the back wheels of scripture I love and that. Pray. It, it's reliability of those things. So if, if you're feeling an impulse to do something that you've never seen anywhere <laughs> in any kind of scripture or any kind of, of, um, prophetic voice or wisdom tradition or any of that, then you probably ought to second guess yourself. Um, and it keeps it stable. But what, what I find so often is that many of us, that tricycle leads with the prophetic revelation and, and the authority and that wheel is the size of one of those old-fashioned tri tricycles that is just gigantic and overwhelms the back two. And what I think of when I think of spiritually maturing, I I see an act of that wheel shrinking and then eventually being swapped out and leading with your own personal experience and revelation. You know, I particularly for LGBTQ, mm -hmm. um, I you know the overall impression. And I do a lot of podcasts, mm -hmm. but people just reach out and say, can I meet mm -hmm. in this very room? And that happens to you also mm -hmm. is really what you say. I just, my, my overwhelming single counsel to them is to, you know, is to stay, is to talk to God. Yeah. And with that heart you're talking about mm -hmm. working with God through prayer, scripture study, if you're going to the temple, go to the temple and, mm -hmm. and God will guide you. Yep, absolutely. And, um, and, and then when someone leaves, mm -hmm. I recognize the double bind they're in. Mm -hmm. I have great empathy for someone who leaves because it's not usually, it's just, a, it's a really hard spot. As you've described, one mm -hmm. father of two gay sons, Bryce Cook, that described mm -hmm. it to me as a double bind. My sons love the church mm -hmm. and would like like to spend their life with somebody. It's not just about being physically intimate. That's it's right. about having a life partner. That's right. And, uh, and so he unlocked the double bind in his family, mm -hmm. even though that double bind exists in the church, um, where he, he, you know, he gave his son's permission to find a life partner. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't sort of, I don't think he advised them. I don't mm -hmm. think he said, this is your path, but mm -hmm. if they felt that was their path and he and his wife said, well, you'll have our support and your partner will be welcome in our family. We'll keep the family circle together and just recognize what a difficult road it was. And I thought that was parental. I thought that was a good thing to do. And just mm -hmm. leaving all this at the Savior's feet and mm -hmm. taking the double bind off his, his two gay sons and keeping the family circle together. And yeah. But he probably had to do what you did is he had to listen. Mm -hmm. And he had to be willing to learn and understand just how difficult this is. And you're right, if we don't, if it's not our life lived experience, sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard to sense and learn someone else's lived experience. That's right. So when someone leaves, my reaction 10 years ago would be fearful and angry and threatened. And now I almost feel, well, I wouldn't want anybody to leave. If someone's leaving, I'd almost want mm -hmm. to show them an increased measure of love. 
Absolutely. Because I recognize it's really hard to leave our faith. It is really hard. And, and, and uh, I, have, I have a couple of friends who have left for, you know, 20 years and, um, and have come back. And they have said that that was an essential part of their journey, that they would not be who they are today with the understanding that they have today and the connection with God that they have today if they had not had those years outside of our faith. Talk about Richard Rohr falling upward term because mm. that's resonated with me. Mm. Yeah, this is this is a wonderful um, construct. Uh, so he has a book called Falling Upward, and um, in it he talks about the two halves of life of spirituality of spiritual lives, and the first half of life, um, it, it's actually quite parallel to the stage three. You know, the first half of life, we um, is all about learning who we are, getting our values, um, setting our lives up for success, getting a career, getting a family, um, achieving. Um, and and um, it's very focused on um, how do we do things and become a good citizen. And, um, and spiritually, that just means how do I, how do I set up that the, the rules that I should live, the good, the bad, the morality, the, the, the values, um, so that I can connect with God. So that's first half of life spirituality. And that can be really focused on, um, the callings that we have or, you know, the status within the, the group. Um, second half of life spirituality is, um, a little more concerned with, some other things. And what I'll say before I describe that is that um, the reason he calls it falling upward is usually what invites us into this second half of life is something that feels very much like a fall. So, um, you know, for some, it's experiencing the, the feelings of a midlife crisis or, you know, all the success that I have, it's not making me happy. I've done all of this now, you know, now what? And it can feel like we're really falling um, through some sort of crisis. Maybe it's brought on by a death. Maybe it's brought on by something we just can't reconcile. Maybe it's, you know, a million different ways that this can be brought on. But how, if we look at really what second half of life spirituality can bring to us, second half of life is not concerned with these ego concerns of how do I look to everybody and am I doing it the right way? And am I, you know, all of these, these concerns that can really cause us a lot of anxiety, really. Um, and we start to be really more concerned with relationship, truly helping people um, you know, being more anonymous with it. It's not about us. We're less likely to say, oh, I can help with that. But we're actually more capable of help, <laughs> of helping. Um, but it becomes just about being part of the dance rather than being the star of the show. That's cool. And, um, and so, yeah, he's, he's, he's been a wonderful uh, that's been a wonderful way for me to look at things. To that's helpful for mm -hmm. me because that's not necessarily going from stage four, three mm -hmm. to four. So I mm -hmm. could just mature within stage three mm -hmm. to say, you know, just use your dance analogy. Yeah. It doesn't mean I've gone to four. I've just matured within mm -hmm. three for mm -hmm. doing things for better reasons and yeah. be more and just, and I think of, and that's, the, you know, I'm thinking of, charity and why we do mm -hmm. good things and charity is the pure love of Christ mm -hmm. and it's not for a reward it's not for 
acknowledgement, but at the end of the day, the hopefully the reasons we do good things is just we love Christ and right. we love our fellow men, and that is sounds like a second half of life or falling upward. Yep. And I would say that the people who are more successful at that at stage three are typically the ones with the most privilege. Yeah. They are typically the ones for whom it just works. And then it's really That's hard for them to understand what, well, if you just did what I did, you'd be where I am. It, it's really hard to get your mind around the idea that it may not be the And privilege the is the things we're born with we didn't earn. Absolutely. That's my definition of, so I'm white, I'm male, I'm straight, I'm all these things in Mormon <laughs> yeah. world. Yeah. I've got every privilege box mm-hmm. checked and now I'm getting the age box checked at 58 and <laughs> I'm fifth generation LDS living in Salt Lake City. So I think yeah. I'm in the bullseye of Mormon LDS privilege. privilege. Yeah. I like another way to look at privileges. If you look at someone else's complaint about something and you don't think it's a problem, you probably have privilege around that. That's good. And, mm-hmm. and that's very helpful. Um, I just look at my own life and I, I even know I, I don't, well, I'm not going to share that because there's just running out of time. I want you to, <laughs> I'd love to just any other thoughts for mm-hmm. LGBTQ people listening and just any other mm-hmm. closing thoughts, Jana. Okay. Yeah, so I'll just I'll just touch on a couple of things um, of what that looks like to have spiritual maturity, uh, and and what do we, how do we how do we access that? Um, so, really, what it does is it 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 it's rather than worrying about um, the details of the doctrine or details of other things or you know having fights about what's right, what's wrong. It's really getting to a place of learning that spirituality can be about transformation from the inside rather than just transactional checking a box of doing the right things. That really, that's what second half of life spirituality is about, is inner transformation. It's not, um, we don't need to Um, all those things that are hard about ourselves or that we don't want the world to see about ourselves or that we feel maybe shameful about rather than just setting those aside and trying to just be good enough and have Jesus save us from all of that. We actually learn that that is a beautiful, essential part. That's cool. We start to understand that opposition in all things really means something to growth. And we start to include all of that. We stop running from it. And that creates a, an opportunity for us to really start to grow. And that um, could be our sexual orientation that we're running from. Absolutely. And, and so I've seen some people that come mm-hmm. out and hit that head on and the growth mm-hmm. that occurs with that and the peace and yep. and just that if I push, I do this a lot with mm-hmm. people I meet with, I say, if you could, here's the red button to make you straight. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of younger whoop. LGBT people would say, yeah, I'd love to be straight. This is a brutal road. But some that have gone through what you're talking mm-hmm. about say, ah, I'm not going to press that button. This is Absolutely. a beautiful part of who I am. And there's Absolutely. no need to have that removed from me. Well, we don't have to look any farther than our first parents, Adam and Eve, and um, the absolute paradoxical uh, situation that they were faced with. And one of the things I love about our faith is that we understand what a noble choice that was of Eve. We don't vilify Eve in quite the way that many Christian faiths do, because we understand that she saw something deeper, that staying in the garden was not what was going to bring the experience that mankind needed to have. And so um, 
she made that choice to step into what was difficult and to face what was hard and um, to live a paradoxical life, you know, um, and I, I, you know, Christ's teachings, he taught in paradox. He taught in paradox all over the place. You lose your life to save it, and the meek are, are mighty. And, it, you know, I, I have a slide of like 10 examples, you know. Um, and and, and he, he taught other people in this way of like there's a third way to do things. And I think the example of, um, of the woman who was caught in adultery is a beautiful example of this. You know, they, they bring her to Jesus and say, we want to stone her for this. And, you know, Jesus doesn't just take this, this exact opposite way saying, well, don't. He doesn't say that. His way is beautiful. His way is, let me, let me highlight what's happening here and you make your own choice, right? Um, so he is, he's an example of this third way. There's a third way to do things where I don't have to do it just one way or the other. I can choose a third way where I, I include what is beautiful from both and live in a way that feels in resonance with my relationship with God and my love for, for one another. So that's the challenge. And I wish I had a template to say exactly how to do this, but I will say that um, I I, want to touch on one thing, which is that it is a very common experience as people deepen in their spirituality for um, spiritual practices that we have always worked for us, like reading the scriptures and praying in a traditional way to stop working. And God becomes elusive to a lot of people. And so um, trying different ways of connecting with, with God, um, maybe it's not the kind of prayer that we've always been taught since primary. Perhaps there's a way of expressing gratitude that feels really good to you. And maybe at, at some point, some people stop feeling like they can ask for things or that that's really a petitionary prayer is really innate to them. But, but sitting in meditation and in communion with God and just feel the presence of God within us. One of the most, another one of the most beautiful things that I think Joseph Smith restored for us at, at, at the time of Joseph Smith, the Protestant thought about, about Christ and the nature of Christ was that he was all deity and we are all human and we are all debased. And there's this huge gap between us. And one of the beautiful things that Joseph Smith brought in the restoration was this understanding that Christ is all human and all divine. And so are we. We are of the same thing. We are part of Christ and God. We are not different from them. We are, in essence, the same. And so just sitting and understanding that the kingdom of God, when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within us, that's really true. The seeds of divinity and and Godhood are right within us. And we can actually just sit and commune with God. So um, meditation that. becomes a really beautiful place for people to start accessing this connection with God that, you know, for the first time in my life when I started meditating, I thought, oh, I, I really can pray always and not faint. I can pray in everywhere that I am because it doesn't have to look like a traditional prayer on my knees every time going through the formula. I really like that. And that's consistent. Mm-hmm. I my typical 
process now mm-hmm. is to start my day with a short kneeling prayer mm-hmm. at my bed and and read a little bit and then go on a long walk mm-hmm. and I've and I've just now I look at that whole experience as a prayer. Mm-hmm. But most of the personal revelation I receive is during the walk. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to background music. Sometimes it's church music. Sometimes just my songs from the 80s that I like. I'm living in the past mm-hmm. and loving songs from the past. But that's where God talks to me. That's where I really, and I've sort of given myself permission to receive personal revelation outside of a traditional kneeling prayer. Mm-hmm. And I do receive revelation at times in a kneeling prayer. So I don't want to say that doesn't work, but I've... I've recognized that, you know, I've just tried to keep what you're teaching, that communication channel open. Yeah. And I've also felt impressed with the YSAs to help them each individually find what works best for them and not sort of have a template answer. Yeah. And they need to kind of work that out with God on how they're best going to connect with God and what sort of opens the communication channel. So I like mm-hmm. what you're teaching there. Yeah. Yeah. So I would just say the last little things that I, I, I offer to everyone. And I think it's, it's so important with, um, um, connecting to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and really understanding them and honoring them, um, is to check our, our Mormon DNA at the door, our LDS DNA that says, our missionary DNA that says we must convince other people of exactly the way we do it. So getting in a space with a little humility to say someone else's path is different than mine. And what I said earlier, just really listening. Don't get into a conversation with someone to explain to them why your way is better. Get into a conversation to understand and just listen and validate and validation i think we really underestimate the power of what validation can do for people and validation doesn't mean i um agree with you or i experience it the same way as you but what it does mean is i hear you um i'm repeating back maybe even exactly what they said to me did i understand that you're asking to so that someone really feels heard and then um just honoring that that is their experience and saying, you know, I can really understand why you're feeling that way with the experience that you've had in life. And, and just that validation. And, and the, the other thing that I really talk about a lot is becoming comfortable with differentiation. And what that word means is Richard, you can have an idea of what's right and wrong in life. And I can have an idea of what's right and wrong in life. And we may completely disagree, but we can still sit together and worship God and view each other as children of God and um, can be completely Christ-like in our differences. So a lot of times we'll feel like, you know, I I see this in faith transition, I see this with the LGBTQ community, um, is we we feel like on some level it's not all okay until we agree of what's the best path. Um, but it is, it is really a beautiful gift that we would, could give to people who have different circumstances than you to um, allow them the dignity of having their own experience and honoring it and just loving them exactly for what their experiences is in life, not wishing it were different in any way. I'm just so touched by that. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. 
And this idea that being heard mm -hmm. and the healing that mm -hmm. to be heard. Yeah. I had lunch with someone today and I felt heard and that was mm -hmm. just so helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and I love what you point out, you don't need to agree and and then I just think, you know, most ninety nine percent of God's children are not in our faith and he's okay with that. Mm -hmm. So I've sort of used that sometimes in my mind, even though I love our faith mm -hmm. and have seen people join our faith in their life being mm -hmm. significantly improved. If someone is, you know, feels their path is different, I've just tried to do what you've done and mm -hmm. just uh, honor their personal agency, mm -hmm. not try to figure out what that means for their eternal destiny or salvation and just leave that at, I don't need to do that. That's right. I'll just leave that at the Savior's feet, and the doctrine that I would show is what Christ taught, and that your teaching is just a love. That's right. Um, and keep that person. Now, if that person joins, I sometimes joke if they join ISIS and want to bomb me, then, <laughs> or if they become a sex trafficker, or if mm -hmm. they become a rapist, or they become a government leader with ethnic mm -hmm. cleansing. Mm -hmm. There's boundaries to that. But if someone just wants permission to live their life. Mm -hmm. Um, serve in our community, have a job or so, you know, mm -hmm. and just that to me is I'll just keep those people in my life. Absolutely. And sometimes we feel a fear. I can understand the fear of, you know, your child comes to you and says, I have this real problem with this gospel principle or whatever. Um, it, maybe it's polygamy or something. And, and to validate that, to say, wow, I can understand how that would be a problem to you feels like giving permission yeah. to, and we, we fear that what it's going to do is it's going to give them permission to then go have all kinds of other problems with it. And what I would say is keep in mind that you have less power over that person's journey than you think you do. And what I actually find is that the less we validate someone, the more they are pushed out to other, other places for places where they will feel validated because Everyone has that need to feel validated, um, trusted, uh, like they have belonging. And without, and without recognizing it, so often we are pushing people out of the fold because we don't make a safe place for them to go through their challenges with us. I really agree with that. And I mm -hmm. wrestled with that as a priesthood leader mm -hmm. when YSAs would come to me. And mm -hmm. I, you know, this is a three-year assignment to be a YSA bishop. And I handle those interviews so differently mm -hmm. in year three than year one. <laughs> and I really came to what I wish you had taught me. <laughs> I wish people like you, Jen, had mm -hmm. come to YSA Bishop training because mm -hmm. I never had any, not me critical of our, my leaders. We just didn't have any, we were having no discussion in this space. And, mm -hmm. and I finally just came, I, the word wedge kept coming to my mind. I kept thinking, validating someone and how they feel does not increase their wedge if there is one between them and the church. But right. actually just what you taught creates mm -hmm. the opposite. That's right. And, and, and it, it feels counterintuitive. It does. Times. And I yeah. felt like I sat in that mm -hmm. chair as the bishop. I can't remember what color it is anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I sort of felt a responsibility to defend the church mm -hmm. and teach the doctrine. And I didn't ever not do that, but I realized that validating how someone feels doesn't mean I'm not honoring the chair that I'm sitting in as a priesthood leader. But in fact, I'm doing what I think I should be doing as a priesthood leader. It costs me nothing to honor how someone feels. It's how they feel. Why would I not give them permission to feel how they feel? What principle of the gospel has ever been taught? You can't, you would teach someone not to feel how you feel. Now, that doesn't take 
personal improvement and growth mm-hmm. off the table. I think that's true. But yeah. I re- And then I found that if I honored how they felt and if they gradually felt different, they're going to come back to me first because they haven't had to sort of dig their heels in. That's right. Um, to sort of justify how they felt. So if they ever had a change of heart or saw things differently, I'm the safest person to come back to because I gave them the most permission to feel that way. That's right. But I didn't do that manipulatively so they'd come back. I did it because I just, it's how they felt. Mm-hmm. And it was a principle of ministry. So I really right. agree with that. And and if there's local leaders or parents, I think you bring up a really good point mm-hmm. for parents when they hear what you did with, in a, it wasn't a priesthood leader situation, but it was a parenting mm-hmm. situation. And I think you're right, would naturally fear that, but I think I really believe that's the right thing. Absolutely. When we allow people to show up 100% of themselves and it is acceptable, it, I don't know that there's any greater gift that we can give to people. When we allow to people to show up 100% mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. they are. Yeah. And have that be okay. That's cool. Yeah. You know, that, that's, I believe, how God views us. He sees us in all of our messiness. He sees us in all of our imperfection and desperately loves us to a degree I don't think any of us can even fathom. And um, I think that it's definitely one of my challenges in life is to learn how to love the imperfect in that way, um, in, in myself, in other people, in institutions, Um, there is nothing in this world that is not imperfect. And so if we do not learn that skill of loving the imperfect desperately and wholly, then we love nothing. So we need to love the imperfect within ourselves. Absolutely. And not, and that's, I like that. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a great challenge for most of us to be able to really love the imperfect within ourselves. I love that. Mm -hmm. We need to close. I could keep talking to you for another hour. How would people find you, Jenna? Um, So I, um, for my coaching business, I work with a group called Symmetry Solutions. And um, our website is symmetrysols.com. So you can connect with me there for any professional services. Um, As far as... um, you know, I, I'm always willing to come and do uh, firesides Good. and presentations. I'm available for that. Um, you know, I've found that the places that have, have invited me in um, – have there's been a very good response and an opening up of dialogue between people. Um, and you know, I love sharing these tools of I'm passionate about us understanding one another and just loving one another and having the ability to do it. I think for the most part, we are all such good people. Um, we just don't necessarily have the tools to be able to, uh, show and have other people experience the love that we really have in our heart. So I'm, I'm passionate about that, but, um, to connect with me there, I would probably just, you know, give my email address to connect with me personally, because I don't have my personal website right up and but running that's yet. That's a good website. I know people can find you. At, Symmetry um, Sols is a great place to, to you're find on me. Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, and I am on Facebook under Jana Johnson Spangler and please message me there. You can connect with me directly. Jen, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for mm-hmm. what you've taken your time to share with our listeners. It's mm-hmm. very helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for our listeners as 
you've given all of us tools and perspective and just models to help other people and help ourselves. And Mm -hmm. a part of your message is to love the imperfect within ourselves Mm -hmm. and to feel better about who we are. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ is and I think that helps us then to make progress as we feel better about what we are. So thank you and thank Absolutely. our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.